0: Hello, welcome to Dirt Rich, seasonal conversations about food and farming. I'm Jared Lumen, the soil health lead for the Sustainable Farming Association. And today I'm talking to my coworker, Tyler Carlson. Tyler is the Silvil Pasture and Agroforestry lead for the SFA, and he also owns and operates a farm with his wife. We're gonna learn a little bit about what Silvil Pasture is, its history, and how he and others are utilizing it on their operations today. So with that, uh, we'll go ahead and get started with the interview. Well, welcome, Tyler. Thanks for taking some time to be uh, on the podcast today. Yeah, thanks, Jerry. Happy to be here. Yeah. So I'm excited to talk about this, this topic, silvopasture. It's a topic that a lot of people don't know a whole lot about. Um, would you mind by starting us off with just a brief description of what silvopasture even is?
1: Yeah, sure. The definition of silvopasture, in my mind, is the intentional integration of trees, forage, and livestock into one um, intensively managed system. So within that system we're managing the trees, particularly managing specific trees in a, in a, in a wooded area or in an area where we've, we've, we're introducing trees into pasture to benefit um, the growth and performance of the pasture forage component as well as the livestock.
0: Yeah, that's uh, that's interesting. So, what did it look like this integration that you talked about between animals and woodlands prior to you know Midwest agriculture, European settlement? Um, what was that like? Obviously, at that point, it wouldn't have been you know domesticated livestock, but those native animals. How how were they integrated with woodlands?
1: Yeah, the the best example you know of thinking about how humans, wild animals in that case, and um, woodlands interacted. Um, pre-European settlement, was really the creation and maintenance of oak savannas. Um, Oak savannas are a system that are largely very um, disturbance-dependent system to maintain it in a balance between prairie and woodland. And so um, the use of fire by Indigenous Americans to create that landscape, um, for various uses and benefits in, and, and particularly for, for hunting and foraging practices and, and utility um, would have attracted um, a, a, a wide range of um, herbivorous um, mammals to those areas post-burn by creating ideal conditions for uh, lush and abundant uh, nutritious forage as well as you know, shade and shelter for the times of year times of year where um, wild animals and livestock alike benefit from that kind of shelter, whether it's shade during high high heat of summer um, or or winter shelter from winds and or uh, driving rains and those kinds of winter adverse conditions. Yeah,
0: that's interesting. It's interesting thinking about like you talk about the native the the people who live there and. How they almost controlled it and were, it, it wasn't entirely natural it was almost intentional at that time too and that they recognized those benefits at the time um i know you touched on it a little bit but what were those the, the benefits that it, uh, i guess it
1: yeah i mean i think i think that the benefits almost you know the benefits that that would have been there for the wild animals and would have attracted the wild animals are, are similarly the benefits that humans are after we're large mammals, too. We benefit from shade. We like shelter um, and we prefer our food to be close um, to those areas. And um, a savanna is kind of, you know, if you think about it, you know, at least the story of the, you know, the out of Africa story is that we we evolved on the, the steps in the savanna of Africa and moved across you know the rest of the planet from there. And everywhere we go, we see examples of different cultures and different places and different landscapes creating savanna-like um, conditions. We are attracted to a landscape that is sparsely populated by trees, easy to move through, easy to see um, a long distance for whether that's hunting or uh, you know protecting from you know would-be invaders or whatnot. Um, mm-hmm. And and then, yeah, the the diversity of the savanna provides for a lot of opportunities for direct consumption of fruits and nuts and herbs and roots, as well as the hunting hunting and or trapping of uh, the wild game that are similarly attracted to those landscapes for that reason. And so, you know, it's kind of, uh, the food is close and a lot of the structural sort of features of a savanna-like landscape um, is enormously beneficial to people. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So if it is beneficial, and there's some people switching
0: to that in kind of some ways now, um, what are the, but largely the landscapes we see in the Midwest now are either, you know, cleared lands, entirely cleared, primarily put into row crops, cash crop corn and soybeans, or woodlands that otherwise you know hunter would see and appreciate but there's very little of this savanna uh, savannah oak savanna. um well first of all why is that i'm curious like why, why is there that separation and then second question after that would be like how are those still integrated today are they are they at all and, and why are people doing it and and in what
1: ways are they doing it sure well you know in the 1800s the um, Plains bison was nearly exterminated, so uh, by by the U.S. government, and um, you know we, as a result, lost a huge force um, on the land from the maintenance of savanna-like landscapes. And similarly, as Europeans, you know, settled across North America, we also removed fire. We we tended to fear fire and try to put fire out as much as possible because fire is enormously destructive Um, we don't want to lose our houses etc and everything else that we build. and so you know if you remove fire and one of the primary uh you know large herbivores from the land um, you're going to have a hard time maintaining savannas without some other intentional um, management tools that can drive those disturbance regimes and keep it from either Basically, losing the trees and going to open pasture or then subsequently cropland um, or going into an overgrown more overgrown state shrub brush land or or even more you know advanced forest system and mm-hmm. so different ways that the savanna could shift and we lose the savannah ground um, and then the reason a reason why um, I would say we haven't integrated, you know that we have this separation of kind of like agriculture and forest and nothing in between. Sort of is somewhat related to, I would say, some silo effect in our university systems, our education systems around you know how we produce food, and so food and farming is, is, is in its own camp, it's in its own campus, it's in its own department, and it's separate from forestry, and so um, you know you're you're focused on doing one thing. Um, when you're in those departments and you do it well, you do it very well, but um, yeah there's some benefits and to the integration and we've lost a lot on the landscape when it comes to wildlife and some of the environmental benefits of savanna like landscapes um, um, for yeah for, for particularly for environmental or habitat type benefits, um, which yeah people need and then um, I would say that also until recently, we didn't have the kind of technology that's really required to do a good job with integrating livestock into forest systems. Just like we didn't necessarily have it to do on prairies and past open pastures. Mm-hmm. So, the technological advancement in water and fencing systems has played a huge role in our ability to do targeted impacts in in, in managing the impacts of livestock on the land. Their grazing and their their animal impact on grasslands, shrubs, trees, forage, et cetera.
0: Yeah. It's interesting like how you talked about the fire being like a tool, because I know I remember reading about that where at some point, uh, and I guess I don't know what department it was or whatever, they, they saw these wildfires and thought how destructive it is. And so they went out, you know, tried to stop it. And what ended up happening was this huge landscape shift. The, the fires were instrumental in, in, creating that certain habitat and then keeping brush down that'll, you know, that allowed, you know, the overstory to let sunlight down to the grasses and different things. And when they stopped that wildfire, these other plants came in and eliminated that landscape altogether. It's just, it's fascinating. A simple act that you would look at it and you would say, this is destructive. This is terrible. We have to stop it. You know, at first glance, but when you take into consideration its impact across the landscape and in that ecosystem, I mean, that was a, the most destructive thing they could have done was stop that wildfire.
1: Yeah, certainly on some landscapes, the the initial um, well-intentioned desire to stop fires from destroying that land or human settlements nearby, et cetera, houses, you know, in, on some landscapes has led to the buildup of brush that at one point, at some point, is going to burn, and when it does, it burns, it burns big, and that's mm-hmm. you know, we, we're definitely seeing some evidence of that out west and up in you know, Canada. Um, not so much, I guess, yet in Minnesota, but mm-hmm. uh, yeah, we're seeing that in North America. Interesting.
0: So today, then, um, how are people integrating livestock today, and, and does livestock work? Is that 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 tool to keep down brush, or, or is, is fire still a tool that is
1: is valuable today? Yeah, I think it's. I think it depends on your goals, but on, in in most situations today, the way that we see livestock integrated into woodlands is is really just it would just be called woodland grazing. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't describe it as silvopasture. It's it's generally just fencing in a wooded area that uh, is not suitable for cropland typically that's why it's in forest. Um, and so, you know, a farmer's just looking to get some extra pasture out of it and it's probably been pastured for years and years, decades. And, uh, it can look somewhat savanna like because a lot of the trees have died out or the farmers harvested them for firewood, you know, and, and other personal uses or for sale. Um, if there's decent trees in there for marketing and, um, So that's the primary way that we see it. It's generally low management. The animals are typically put in there for weeks or months at a time. uh, and They're kind of left, left to their own devices in there. What's the result of that? Uh, The result is generally uh, certainly a degraded woodland system, uh, typically degraded soil, degraded habitat, degraded, degraded water quality. Um, You know, a lot of things that, uh, society is looking to do a better job of providing on our multifunctional landscapes. So, yeah. And, and fire, um, most farmers are not using fire when they're integrating livestock. Uh, You know, fire in some systems might be being used. I would say more like by public land, you know, managers who are trying to utilize fire to particularly probably keep um, certain fire dependent Plants, or uh, yeah, certain species that really need fire um, to regenerate and maintain themselves in the system. Um, so fire has a role if if that's part of your goal. Mm-hmm. But um, certainly livestock can keep um, livestock, you know, in various forms of management can can keep uh, the brush down, so to speak, mm-hmm. on their own without fire. Okay. So that degradation,
0: I'm I'm curious on that degradation and the lack of management. What does proper management look like and why does that change? Why is that different than improperly managed?
1: Yeah, sure. So I would say really similarly to when we think about um, grazing of even open pastures and open, you know, grasslands, native grasslands or restored grasslands, um, You know we used to and still do a lot of basically um putting animals onto a pasture for weeks to months at a time and but there's been decades of work on recognizing the benefit of rotating and moving cattle providing rest um to those those pastures and those plants um, not just benefits to the wildlife and the environment, but benefits to the, the farm operator too, the producer. Um, we can provide a better, um, more consistent you know, profile of forage nutrition and um, availability or production across the season with rotational grazing. And really the more intensive we get, so sure, moving cattle once a week, is good moving them every three days is better and moving them every day or or even more than once a day is even better than that um there's diminishing returns with every move but it just kind of depends on the producer goals and what the sites the site is sort of asking for that would dictate um this you know how frequently animals are being moved but by moving animals off you know by coming in and and taking a portion of the forage not everything but a portion maybe up to half Of the forage available, and then moving them off and allowing the site to rest for weeks to months before returning again for a short-duration grazing event, we can we can maintain much healthier plants, plant systems, uh, plant root systems in particular, um, in those systems. And that's the same for open pasture as it is for a a woodland system or a you know a silvopasture system or a savanna. you know we're, we're really looking to maintain some sort of balance between harvesting and you know defoliating those plants without mm-hmm. without harming them so that they can bounce back they can have deep roots that you know can can reach deeper reserves of moisture greater pools of nutrients so these can reduce inputs um, you know and also you're as a result of moving and resting um, you you reduce the congregation of of livestock in any one spot for too long of a period which when livestock you know congregate in any one area whether it's for a few days too long you know or particularly weeks and months at a time mm-hmm. we have issues with nutrients and soil damage and things like that so
0: so yeah that rest and recovery period is really important in the woodlands in the yeah. woodland areas just as just as it is an open pasture line.
1: Yeah. And, and also important, you know, not just for the plants and water, but also for, you know, any other wildlife you're trying to support in those systems, mm-hmm. you know, there needs to be something there. There needs to be some structure sure. to support nesting areas and sure. places of cover to hide and places mm-hmm. and things, other things that are out there to hunt and eat. Yeah. So yeah, we want to leave, if we want to get maximum and optimum, you know, multi-purpose benefit out of our working lands, um, we have to factor those things in
0: yeah yeah that's interesting um because a lot of people and kind of where my next question was going is the focus on the financial side and the financial benefits of pasture, but you mentioned the multi you know the multifaceted faceted you know benefits that come from this as opposed to just the financial side you know there's your your wildlife species increases the rest improves the you know grasses and the soils that will you know, improve, improve nutrient density and all these things um, in your soils and the products that you're raising. But on the financial side, like, what do you see as some of the biggest financial benefits of silvopasture? When, when I think of it, I, you know, I right away think of, you know, some of my neighbor farms. They've purchased farms in the past that have 10 acres, uh, at one in particular. thing And he, he bought a farm that's got like 10 or 20 acres of woods. And when he was buying it, he said, you know, I'm, that's, that land's worthless to me. He's not, I'm not going to pay, you know, any price per acre because to him, that ground was worthless. And so I got to imagine if you can, if you can take what otherwise would be viewed as worthless land and turn it into some sort of appraisable land, you know, that's a huge financial benefit. You essentially just bought yourself more land, more usable land for free. Um, is that the main financial benefit or are there other financial benefits too? Yeah. Uh, you know
1: one way to frame that is to, to think about from a producer's perspective you know they might ask why would i want to have you know pasture with trees in it why would i want to put shade on my you know pasture plants my grass for my cattle or whatever and uh, you know in in theory and in practice when it's done right um you know there's a caveat because these systems are highly diverse and complex and take a lot of management but in theory these these systems have the capacity to outperform from a financial perspective a return on investment perspective you know either wooded areas and open pasture ground so because you're combining trees particularly when you start managing that that wooded system for high value timber when you combine the, the benefits of the, the long term sort of you know, equity building of that timber that one day can be harvested uh, with the benefits of livestock gain, um, those systems can be more profitable than an open pasture system. Now, in the short term, a lot of producers that I'm working with, they're not necessarily interested in timber. You know, timber can be particularly if the site doesn't have high quality timber now or high trees that will be high quality timber soon. Uh, it can be decades before you'll get a harvest that can you know bring in the thousands of dollars an acre that you know we all when
0: the <laughs> hope average for. Farmland is, what, sixty-seven or something. Yeah, and they're not exactly forty-year return
1: on their land. It's for your grant. That's for your grandkids, yeah. right? Like, so that's a harder sell. Yeah, but it does factor in. But I would say that um, so that's kind of a longer term outlook on yeah. that profitability. But um, in the short term, the benefits of silvopasture come, particularly when you compare for when you compare um, to open pasture settings for grazing. That if your farm now is all open, you know, if you're a pasture, you know, you're you're raising cattle or sheep or whatever on pasture, um, and you don't have good shade. Um, and if, you're, if your pasture plants are primarily cool season pasture plants, which most of the pasture in Minnesota is cool season grasses and legumes, you know, you're, you're experiencing a summer slump most years. When it gets hot and it gets dry in July and August, the pasture stops growing, the nutrition starts cratering, and the livestock performance goes with it. Because not only is the food that they're eating less abundant and less nutritious, it's higher in lignin but uh, they're also uncomfortable because it's so hot Mm -hmm. and they would. And so the the silvopasture benefits in keeping those average daily gains up in July and August on cool season grasses, because the production maintains itself in a properly designed silvopasture. Um, you, You have much higher production and less of a summer slump and the nutrition maintains itself. It doesn't get as lignified because the grasses aren't as hot as open grown. So not only is the grass more nutritious and you have more of it per acre, but the livestock are also more comfortable. They stay eating all day or most of the day instead of standing under one tree or over by the water tank and making a mess. And um, so particularly if you've got a slump where your livestock are not putting on gain or potentially losing weight, as we have seen from research down in Missouri, I don't know, you know, I don't have good data for Minnesota, but I've seen systems where, in the design, the open, the open pasture cattle were losing weight while the, the cattle that were in silvopasture were still gaining over a pound a day during extreme heat uh, oh. conditions. And Correct. at the end of six weeks and at the end of the year, that adds up to a lot. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's real short-term benefit. Sure. And that doesn't necessarily mean you should put your whole farm into silvopasture, mm-hmm. but a portion of it, some sure. recommendations suggest 25 to 30% of your farm might be in civil pasture for a, particularly a summer grazing system.
0: As a place where you can almost move in those times where you need it. Yes. Reserve it
1: for when the heat's, you know, when the heat is on and it's humid and cattle are just miserable. Sure. You know, you can keep those cows comfortable and that's really important. You know, I, I, I do grass finished beef and keeping gain on those cattle and never letting them go backwards is extremely critical to, you know, ultimate yield and, um, you know, meat quality. Um, and so it's, it's important to think about, you know, your end product to what you're trying to produce. And yeah. sometimes it's not as simple as just dollars and cents, but, uh, sometimes there's, you gotta, you gotta achieve certain results. And sure. This is one way to do that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That's, that's really interesting. And one thing that I think about here on our farmer, if you look at, we're almost all corn and soybean country flatlands, no trees, and where there is a tree, that's where all our manure gets concentrated. The cattle all stand and huddle under those trees. So, in a silver pasture system, is that a worry that you have of concentrating your manure in one area or, or a few specific areas and not being able to evenly distribute that across your pasture?
1: Yeah, it's, it's less of an issue in silver pasture, particularly because, you know, one thing we're going to keep the animals moving. So we're not going to park them in an area, uh, you know, even though if there might be enough forage for them for a week, we're going to move them and subdivide that, those paddocks, we, even within the trees. We're going to give them subdivisions for, you know, daily moves or maybe every other day. I don't like to go beyond that. Um, but because you've got trees, you know, the reason the manure isn't evenly distributed across the pasture with the one tree is because the shade isn't evenly distributed across the pasture. Mm-hmm. It's in one spot. So that's where the livestock go. If the shade is much more evenly or, you know, relatively evenly distributed across the pasture, they don't necessarily pick one tree, they tend to continue moving, they keep grazing, you know, they're also they're under that tree. And yes, they're they're congregating all their manure there, but they're also not eating all or most of the day. They usually usually shift their grazing behavior to grazing at night, which is fine. It's a good thing they do that. Mm-hmm. But it would be better if they, you know, didn't if they could continue to graze all day long and be more comfortable, lay down, chew their cud, you know, be happy cows. I yeah. think so. Well, right off the top of my
0: head i think of the bricks readings and the sugar content your grass is as highest in the afternoons and that's also when the hottest weather is yes so right. with that shade you can help yeah. allow a cow to more comfortably graze when the the quality of the the grass is at its highest absolutely interesting okay so one of my last, my last kind of question here for you because i think we're going to have to break this into two podcasts. Um, so you can touch briefly on this and we'll get more into depth on the next, the next one. But what are the opportunities specifically in, in Minnesota for farmers to implement this silvopasture system on their, on their
1: farms? Yeah, I actually think Minnesota has a lot of opportunity for silvopasture. First and foremost, that comes to mind is uh, a few years ago, the University of Minnesota conducted a survey of uh, Minnesota livestock producers and concluded that at least 600,000 acres of Minnesota woodlands are are basically unmanaged grazing. That's what we call it. Um, or minimally managed grazing. Um, so there's a there's an enormous opportunity there um, to very quickly Im- improve the, you know, I'd say livestock performance, the, the uh, habitat performance, the environmental benefits of, uh, you know, water quality of that land, and that's a lot of land, um, and and there's there the livestock are already there. Um, there's at least some fencing and water infrastructure there. We might need to improve some of that, but and and you know incentivize some you know moving the animals around a little bit more, and maybe doing some thinning, and maybe even some tree planting in a few areas. But uh, there's an enormous opportunity there in, in areas where cattle are already in the woods. In addition to that, um, Minnesota had um, you know tens if not hundreds of thousands of acres of of oak savanna across the state stretching from southeastern Minnesota all the way up to northwestern Minnesota along the sort of prairie forest border in patches and strips and pockets you know all over the place and so some of that is still there it's just remnant savanna it's overgrown um you know or been um you know it's being grazed now it's some of that is probably part of the you know 600,000 acres of woodlands but um um so that there's an opportunity there for sure i think to to get some to utilize silvopasture pasture to, to restore oak savannah um and then in addition to that we've got i would say red pine plantations and popple plantations come to mind um so those are former farm fields that were planted to trees for a short rotation short ish i mean <laughs> short rotation in the forest world i guess sure. but, you know um and so there's some opportunity there to you know if you've got a popple plantation that uh, was slated to be harvested, but then, you know, the uh, pulp mill went out of business or burned down in the case of my area, um, you know, and, and so you, you've lost that market. Now, what are you going to do with that land? Well, maybe silvopasture is a good opportunity to keep it in some trees and you could you could thin that. And you could do the same with red pine. That's really actually the first, you know, pine silvopasture is, is one of the first sort of you know, more recent in the way that we think of, you know, modern silvopasture, science, the science of silvopasture was really, um, explored and, um, done well in the southeastern U.S. and a little bit in the north, northwest, but uh, with, with pine plantations that, um, you know, when they planted them, the markets looked, looked good. And then 20 years later, markets didn't look so good. So they had to figure out what we're going to do to make this, you know, how are we going to recoup our investment? What can we do here? other than just cut all these trees down and start over. And that's where, um, you know, silvopasture really and a lot of research that supports the benefits that I described earlier and silvopasture came from originally. And I think that there's some opportunity, you know, to, to try some of that with our mm-hmm. own pine plantations and, and other sort of, you know, timber plantations uh, yeah. in, in Minnesota. Interesting. Additionally, one other opportunity is where we have woodlands that um, are probably, re- have recently been in pretty decent shape not grazed, not recent, you know, recently grazed, and um, you know, we qualify as a you know, pretty decent forest, um, but has since become overgrown with invasives like buckthorn, um, there's an opportunity to use silvopasture in the short term to uh, set back and maybe eradicate the buckthorn and also do you know, some, some thinning and, and standard sort of forest improvement, timber stand improvement work inside of there, get some short-term benefits with livestock and then shift it back into a more healthy forest system if that was something that was in alignment with the landowner's goals.
0: Interesting. Okay, cool. Well, thank you. Um, before we wrap this up, I know SFA, Sustainable Farming Association, we've got a few civil pasture field days coming up uh, this, this late summer and fall. Would you mind just sharing a little more details about those or the dates Absolutely. and stuff?
1: Yeah, real quick. So we're going to have, we've got a series of three field days spread across the state, North central and Southern Minnesota. Um, we're going to have, we're going to start off around uh, eight o'clock and, uh, do registration and we'll have about 45 minutes of sort of classroom, you know, sort of intro to silvopasture work. Then we're going to go out and do a a tour of uh, a farm that's been utilizing silvopasture practices to, uh, do various things on their farm. Some of them are more just, you know, converting a woodland to silvopasture. Others are are really focused on, um, you know, almost, you know, pre-focused on oak savanna restoration or so, or some variation or or model of that based on the farmer's goals. And so we'll see their practices, and we'll we'll talk about agro we'll talk about agroforestry and silvopasture, and um, we'll talk about some you know uh, some tools and maybe utilize some tools to look at a site and go through an initial assessment and um, use that to help guide sort of some initial decision-making about converting particularly wooded silvopasture to uh, a wooded wooded, uh, area into silvopasture, I should say. And so the the first one is in uh, Becker uh, at Snake River Farm with Tom Barthel um, on August 6th. And then uh, we've got another one on August 11th at Sunup Ranch near Brainerd with Vicki Kettlewell. And then uh, one August 13th in Wabasha with Tom Hunter. And uh, yeah, so the one at Tom Hunter's is gonna be, uh, he's got some kind of bluff country, sort of savanna he's trying to restore. And um, we've got some similar savanna restoration uh, at Snake River and up Ranch up north by Brainerd's got kind of a, oh, I think it was three or four years ago, they, they did a research um, sort of study up there on converting wooded area into sobo pasture. So we'll take a look at that.
0: Awesome, awesome. Well, thanks so much.
1: Thanks for sharing that. And thanks for being on the podcast today. Thanks. I should say real quick, more details and registration for those events can be found at our Silvopasture and Agroforestry page on our website at SFA, and we'll put the link in the show notes.
0: Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Thank you. And that website is sfa-mn.org. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks, Jared. Dirt Rich is produced by the Sustainable Farming Association. We believe that agriculture done well heals. For more resources or to tap into the Farmer to Farmer network, visit us at sfa-mn.org.